You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. I'm your host, Jessica, and today we're going to learn more about Woodrow Wilson Academy of Teaching and Learning. The mission of the Academy is to reinvent American teacher preparation. Formed in 2015 at MIT, the Academy offers a competency-based master's in education in secondary school STEM. Other programs will be added later as well. James Tracy was selected as the president of the new teacher preparation program in 2018. The Stanford PhD is a leading voice on innovation, a board member at Boston's Learn Launch, and former head of a respected Rhode Island prep school. Let's listen in to hear as Jim explains his unlikely path to education leadership and why he is as passionate about empowerment as he is about innovation. Jim Tracy, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. Thanks so much. It's great to be with you, Tom. Jim, we had the great pleasure of having dinner a couple nights ago at the uh, the Boston Museum of Fine Art. What a treat. A wonderful venue and a great conversation. You grew up in that uh, neighborhood, didn't you? I did. I'm, I'm an atavistic Bostonian and uh, actually grew up in a uh, much more working class area uh, than um, probably most of the people in that room. Ended up living on the West Coast for a number of years, and it's wonderful to be back in Boston. But there's probably no more exciting place right now. There are equally exciting places. I, I think that the West Coast is certainly one. Uh, but there is no more exciting place to be involved in um, at the interstices of education, technology, and social transformation than uh, the Boston area right now. Yeah, certainly one of the global hotspots, uh, and and thanks in part to MIT, where we mm-hmm. attended a convening together. So I, I learned enough about your background um, at dinner that my my first question is, how on earth does a high school dropout go on to become a Stanford history PhD? You left <laughs> you left high school out of frustration, right? What give us the backstory there? Uh, well, I, I was a working class kid, and, and uh, uh, I found high school stultifying, and um, uh, more than that, I felt that it was purposeless. I really didn't see a, a clear connection between what was. Uh, happening in my life or and um, what I was experiencing in the classroom. So I, I did leave at the end of my junior year. Most young people have that same experience, but they don't quit. So how did you muster the uh, the, the bravery to uh, walk out after your junior year? Well, I'm not sure that it, it was bravery so much as just uh, gravity, because um, uh, in, in my town, there was a um, high proportion of dropouts. And so... Um, I didn't have to overcome perhaps the, the the cultural resistance that would have encouraged me to stay in school. Um, in fact, I went back some years later and uh, rather unscientifically uh, concluded that uh, my graduating class uh, of those who did graduate, only 12% went on to uh, either two or four year colleges. So, so it was um, pretty standard to, Right. to leave, leave or to finish but not go on with any formal education. And uh, um, really, it was a town of um, uh, really brilliant people. And I really want to underscore that. Now that I've been in, in venues throughout my career, like Yale and MIT and Stanford and others, um, I have not met people who are innately more capable than those with whom I grew up. It was really just about opportunity and culture. 
Um, and so these these highly capable people are still my friends with whom I grew up, and they are today. You know, if they're successful, they're garage mechanics. Um, there are two of my friends who have gone on to higher education or, or a business success, but overwhelming preponderance of, of us are uh, blue collar or, or, um, or clerical workers, if they're not, in some cases, um, underclass or even street people. So it really, it really struck home to me as, as I engaged in a personal journey of agency vis-a-vis um, -vis the educational system that uh, so much of this is a cultural construct and cultural uh, constriction. Um, variety, sort of a conjuries of, of epiphanies led me to eventually, uh, as I was um, a, a young family man, married at 18 with, with a um, father at 18 working in factories, um, ended up getting my GED and then uh, continuing to work in unskilled uh, positions in factories or unloading trucks in warehouses uh, while I commuted to UMass Boston, uh, got an undergraduate degree. But the sort of natural trajectory for somebody who had uh, perhaps unnaturally uh, begun to bro break out of uh, that sweatshop trajectory, um, for the few of us who did that, the natural trajectory, the natural expectation was that we would try to monetize our educational journey as quickly and as uh, and and as uh, high, in as highly a leveraged way as possible, i.e., that we would that I would be majoring in business, for instance, and instead I ended up majoring in history and religion as an undergrad, um, and going on to do my doctoral work at Stanford in American history. And in answer to your question, the reason was that I was very much interested in how. Uh, historically marginalized populations can uh, it, it can collectively engage in the type of um, empowerment and uh, enhanced sense of agency and enfranchisement uh, in concrete social transformations. So in other words, on the, I mentioned I was a history and religion double major. At that time, I was uh, very much, uh, very much intrigued and transfixed with the uh, with the emerging theologies coming out of Latin America that were sort of under the larger rubric of liberation theology. And then on the historical side, of course, I was um, studying American social social protest, especially the black freedom struggles. So I went on to to do that at Stanford. What was it like being a white guy studying uh, the African-American um, Struggles for progress. Uh, you know, it was um, humbling. Uh, it was sometimes uh, contentious uh, because certainly there were people who uh, felt that this was a a, a black uh, ledger domain. Uh, I resisted that. I felt that race, uh, if it's to be at all remediated. And, re and redeemed in our society cannot but be a collective endeavor of all of us. Uh, and and it, it, um, there's no hope for um, uh, social re societal redemption in the absence of, um, of a um, hopefully humble, intellectually and spiritually humble, 
but certainly a shared journey of discovery and exploration. And um, so, so to me, that was the vision of uh, Dr. King. And, um, you know, I, I, it was contentious at times. Um, I remember I was at the Southern Historical Association meeting when I was working for the uh, um, King Papers Project, and there were people at that gathering. It was a very substantial historical ga uh, gathering of histor historical writers and professionals, and uh, there were people there who just during uh, the keynote uh, rather emphatically said that those of us who were white should not be working on the King Papers. And um, and I was sitting next to Virginia Durr, who was, um, um, she was married to, had been married to Clifford Durr. And Clifford Durr was a white liberal lawyer in um, Montgomery, who was known to support um, uh, the uh, black leadership when they were found to be uh, in trouble with the white power structure for their for their uh, for their mo movement endeavors, and so he was actually the first and what and only phone call Martin made when he was arrested, and um, I'm sorry, not Martin, but Rosa Parks. So Martin also called him when he got arrested shortly thereafter uh, on a trumped up charge of not having his left blinker on, incidentally. But um, Rosa Parks called Clifford from the jail cell when she was taken off of the bus. And um, so she, Edie Nixon, uh, uh, and others met in Clifford Durr's living room with Virginia there. And... Um, so I'll never forget. So, so that's a bit of the history of Virginia Durr, um, remarkable movement leader in her own right. But as a white woman in her 90s, she stood up at this conference and said, um, I can't believe what I'm hearing. Uh, Mikey was a friend of mine. Mikey would be turning in his grave to hear what people are saying, that white people can't be working on his papers. And of course, the, those who had known Martin Luther King as, as a young man always called him Mikey. Um, um, so, uh, so to me, that was emblematic of the fact that I was, I felt very empathic and compassionate for those who felt that whites should not be involved in that type of historiography. But I also, um, felt passionately that we had a necessary role, uh, albeit a truncated and secondary and uh, non-hubistic role. So next tough question, Jim, is that how does someone with such an appreciation for um, for individual and collective empowerment, someone with an appreciation for um, the, the, the price and challenge of, of social justice uh, end up being a leader in uh, private schools in New England? <laughs> um, well, uh as you might imagine, I've been asked that at different times. Um, uh, my feeling was, and, and I think this is germane to our, our discussion today very, very much so. Um, my feeling was that uh, the uh, the well-resourced independent schools 
had an opportunity and a responsibility to live up to their their um, what they had always articulated but never realized as a Dewey and promise of uh, of, of a larger democratic function. Uh, in that they um, could position themselves to be incubators of the future in a way that the public schools were not uh, in, a, in the best position to do. Um, I.e., I felt that with uh, minimal governmental regulatory compliance issues uh, and, um, and high per capita resources, they could promulgate and explore possible new teacher practice, teaching practices, educational practices, um, with a, with a low bar in terms of the consequences to failure. Um, and you, and you, went, they on, could be you able- went on to do many of those things at Rock Hill, a, a well-known school. And I'd love to dive into some of the innovative programs that you launched at, uh, at Rock Hill. Sure. So, so I just felt that they could be much more adroit and and supple. Um, and so, um, so for instance, I, I really started at Cushing Academy, uh, which I, which I became uh, head of school in two thousand six. And um, right around the turn of the millennium, as an historian, I became increasingly convinced that really the key driver of our era uh, of the, this this um, emergent Anthropocene was technology. And so as an historian, I went back and read everything I could on what I felt were the two previous technology-driven inflection points. And those, in my thinking, are are the Neolithic and the Industrial Revolutions. Um, And wanted to see how what we were living through today had commonalities and and distinctive distinctive, um, trajectories. I then felt that uh, we needed to have the independent schools I was leading explore these possibilities and challenges at the leading edge. So at Cushing Academy, I uh, got the entire faculty and the trustees to vote unanimously without a single dissenting vote that we would um, take this at at that point, 143-year-old well-resourced school in central Massachusetts with over 40 buildings. Uh, and turn it into what we called an uh, a, uh, an incubator that would do a reconnaissance of the near future. And um, so we started. I started hanging out with a lot of Silicon Valley people, including the uh, very early days of uh, Singularity University. And um, we built close relationships also with the um, Oxford Martin School, what was then called the James Martin School for the 21st Century at Oxford University. Um, and what we were asking ourselves was, if we think about uh, megatrends into the coming century, um, how might we uh, explore and promulgate the best emergent teaching practices? So we did a number of things. We, um, we ended up uh, sending at least two teachers from every department to any school in the country that they wanted to visit where they thought the most exciting uh, emergent practices could be found. And then they came back and each of them had to uh, write up a chapter on what they had seen, what they had learned. And then we shared that as open open content on the web for schools that couldn't afford to go to all of these, uh, all of these um, uh, other institutions around the country. We also, as we were following our muse, began to um, 
perhaps most famously or infamously, we began to ask ourselves, well, given this new thing called the Kindle, uh, what's the role of libraries in the future? Are libraries in danger of no longer having uh, a function as a particular locus where people actually gather? Because obviously at that point, we we're talking about well, the library can now be anywhere that people have, have web access. Um, so we decided just following our muse and talking to folks in Silicon Valley with whom we were uh, in regular contact that we would try to see if we could actually save the library as as a physical locus um, by digitizing it, which may sound counterintuitive, but this was in 2009. And what we thought was, let's create a digital agora. Let's try to create a reason for uh, people to congregate even though the in even though the information that they're accessing is is ubiquitous spatially and temporally, um, and so we moved all of the books out of the library. We had a very antiquated collection of twenty thousand books that included a nineteen fifties encyclopedia of sociology. We moved all of the physical books to departments, and um, if they were books that departments did not want, we gave them to literacy programs. And instead, we built a very robust uh, place that included a, uh, what we call the cyber cafe and encouraged people to gather and to talk around ideas and gave them the most robust tools available digitally in 2009 to then query larger databases uh, globally as they were exploring ideas as, as a human community. Um, and interestingly, in our own internal surveys, the library went from the least, literally the least used space out of the 40 plus buildings on campus to the most used space by both teachers and students. Um, and yet, and we also saw a, a literally 20 fold increase in students um, downloading because we're in, we now had a we had an NDA and a and a, and a relationship with uh, Kindle Education. I, I had met Jeff Bezos at a at a TED conference, and he had facilitated our building some um, beta testing with what could be done in schools with the Kindles. So we had a really nice program that allowed the students to explore books uh, effortlessly, uh, and we saw a 20-fold increase in non-assigned reading downloads. Uh, after, the, after the novelty had worn off, it settled in a couple of years later to a consistent and ongoing 10-fold plateau of increase, which is still extraordinary for the subsequent years. Um, so we felt that this was a great success story. As it happened, uh, we had touched a rather raw nerve at a time of vulnerability on the part of the print media. And so the um, the story got picked up by the Boston Globe and was on was above the fold on the first page of the Friday edition. And um, we ended up in a media firestorm that was quite interesting, that was uh, overwhelmingly negative for the first three months, uh, caustically negative for the first three months. And then over the course of the subsequent six months started started gravitating toward and eventually being overwhelmingly positive, saying that somehow we were prophets and had been proven proven uh, prescient. Um, so the Globe actually ran a story nine months after we had first done this that said, um, 
referred to me, but of course it was a collective endeavor. It said something to the effect of Tracy has gone from pariah to profit in nine months, which, which to me was emblematic of how quickly this wave was cresting, this technology wave, how, how the rapidity of movement in perceptions and realities. Um, and of course, I never, I, I can to this day think I was never either pariah nor profit, but um, that was my experience with how the media uh, functions or otherwise. Speaking, speaking of being prescient, I, I want to ask you a question about our friend Arthur Levine. Um, it, it was during the period when you were experimenting at uh, Christian Academy around 2002, 2007, that Art Levine, as president of the Woodrow Wilson National Fellowship Foundation, conducted a comprehensive study of uh, America's education schools. And he published these seminal reports, educating school teachers, educating school leaders, and educating researchers. Uh, I wonder if you remember when Art published Educating School Teachers in, in 2006. I sure do. And of course, that was the time when I was um, just taking over Cushing Academy. And, um, and uh, incidentally, I had just finished uh, a master's in education at Boston University. Um, and so everything that he, the, the malaise that he described was, uh, and I'm not, I'm not singling out Boston University, it's a wonderful school. But uh, the malaise he described in the training of teachers was palpable to me at that point. I can literally say that I don't think I, uh, and this is a sad thing to say, but I don't think I learned one single thing in the MED program. It was the most uh, intellectually anemic experience of my life. Uh, and uh, and that includes the um, desultory education I in high school that led me to drop out. Um, and, uh, and again, I'm not critiquing Boston University. I, I think that uh, the the the, um, the schools of education had become uh, really um, uh, quite uh, quite anemic, and so one of the things that I have really enjoyed about getting to know Art, and um, he was a, a, an intellectual and educational hero of mine. Uh, with that and other publications for many years, I've only just gotten to know him in this role uh, personally and his intellectual honesty and unflinching willingness to, to face uh, difficult realities about, um, about the field of education is, um, is a clarion call for us because it takes courage. It is a rare quality and it also is precisely what's needed if we're going to have uh, a genuine assessment of uh, our failings in order to have a, a, a any sort of hope for redemption as as an as an industry, and I I think that you know one one of my key drivers is that um, and why I went into education, and why I was trying to do what I was doing with what could have been a very comfortable uh, nondescript sinecure as headmaster of various um, private schools, and instead tried to felt compelled to drive them toward. Uh, being innovators and generators of change, uh, I should I should underscore that uh, it was a an express, explicit, foundational statement of everything that we did at Cushing Academy and everything I've done at every subsequent school, including Rocky Hill, that whatever we discover in our journey of being incubators of the future, 
has to be designed from the outset to be replicable and scalable to the, and I would underscore it, the least resourced schools on the planet. And it has to be available as, um, it has to be available um, to minimus cost. And uh, so for instance, that actually was uh, sometimes arduous for us. Uh, I'll give a very concrete example. When we digitized our library at Cushing Academy in 2009, we said that we um, there were many databases we could have bought into that were mostly used at university libraries um, that were very well selected and curated and and uh, maintained. But we said we that they were prohibitively expensive for most schools, not for us. We said that we have to find a way to build a um, database platform uh, that can be used in our library that is co completely open source architecture. And that was not readily available in 2009 by any means. And it was quite arduous for us to uh, start to hobble together a workable architecture for that. But we were committed from the outset that this has to be adoptable at zero cost to the least resource school on the planet. And um, so, so th th that's an important qualifier in terms of what we we're trying to do. The reason I felt driven to those types of endeavors, and I, the reason, I, at least, and I don't want to speak for art, but what I find so compelling about art is that we need to, I think, uh, we need to shift from education being a, um, being a lagging industry being uh, uh, to being a, a leading indicator. Um, we can no longer afford in this particular paradigm shift for education to follow, precisely because this, edu this uh, societal shift is not about physical uh, material goods, as uh, say the Industrial Revolution was, but it's about knowledge itself. And education is not very well suited historically to be a leading indicator. But um, that is precisely what's required if we're going to uh, optimize the potentials and minimize the convulsive disruption of this transition point. A good, a, well, a good example of that might be your new post. Um, so a few months ago, a few months ago, you were named the president of the Woodrow Wilson Academy of Teaching and Learning. So tell us about the, this new organization. What's the mission and where does it sit? What do you hope to accomplish? Well, again, I, I want to uh, doff uh, my hat to, uh, to Art for, the, for founding this. This is really his vision uh, in collaboration with Raphael Reif here at MIT. And um, Woodrow Wilson, uh, we're actually um, sort of a uh, newsflash. We just in the past uh, few weeks are in the process of changing our name from Woodrow Wilson Academy of Teaching and Learning to Woodrow Wilson Graduate School of Teaching and Learning. And one of the reasons for that is that um, depending upon the uh, Google algorithms you might have, um, if you were to search Woodrow Wilson Academy, there's a very good chance that you would um, actually call up a K through eight uh, charter school of that name in Denver. So <laughs> we're we're not we're now Woodrow Wilson Graduate School, but but we are a joint venture of MIT and Woodrow Wilson National Fellowship Foundation, uh, at which Art is the president. And the premise really is to um, to uh, build this independent college within the MIT ecosystem that um, can try to uh, articulate. 
and actually in practice institute um, optimal teaching practices to prepare the next generation of teachers. And so that, of course, then begs several questions. What is optimal and how do we know that? And I think that that's, um, you know, happy to describe how we're trying to address those those challenges. But the fundamental premise is let's try to uh, start ex nihilo. Um, and part of the appeal of MIT, obviously MIT has a great deal of intrinsic re appeal, but, um, but part of that appeal was ironically that MIT did not have a school of education, so we could start with a tabula rasa here. What would you say are the distinctive um, design features of the program? Well, I'd say, um, I, if I could parse that a little bit, I would say that there are um, some distinctive design features, and then there are some distinctive process features for how we anticipate getting to the next uh, iteration of distinguishing design features. So in terms of our current design features, which I think are quite unique and exciting, um, we are a master's degree program for um, MED for teacher certification in, in STEM right now. Um, we're, again, we're, we have our first cohort of 20 students. The plan is to eventually be 150 students in other areas, not just STEM. Uh, but currently we have 20 students in STEM. We uh, are a, an entirely a, a um, competency-based program that is self-paced. And um, so there's no seat time. There are no formal traditional classrooms. And the way that students demonstrate competency is um, by going through a series of immersive and um, even narrative-driven challenges. Uh, we require all students to have an undergraduate degree in their field so that we, um, we don't see ourselves as, as teaching content so much as pedagogical practice. And, um, and interestingly, when, when you asked about the design feature, we have this set of competencies, but our overarching competency for all of them is, um, is design thinking which we feel is, is a key quality. We also um, argue that you know, one, of the one of the sort of memes internally here is that you have to model the model. So we sort of see a three-tier um, consistent pattern of, we feel that if the teachers are going to go into classrooms and teach students uh, the uh, set of, um, the set of process competencies of creativity, iteration, resilience, um, uh, teamwork, uh, all of the sort of um, soft, soft skills or process skills that we're quite familiar with, um, that they need to have learned how to do that in the first instance and then bring those design thinking qualities to their own lesson planning. So we see that three tier of the teachers need to learn in that modality in order to then design in that modality in order to then have students experientially in that modality. It's almost, I, I almost envisage it as um, almost like fractals that it, you have to find the same, the same, um, the same uh, pattern at every layer. It makes uh, no sense to me that we expect teachers to be going in and training students to be generative thinkers today when they're coming from um, a program that is very prescriptive. So those those are some of the unique elements of our program, uh, and um, 
And in terms of the um, process for continuing to iterate that, I, I would strongly submit and suggest that on the one hand, we, um, we are trying not to be defined by anything that I've just described to you, because we see everything as a tentative model in a much broader uh, and uh, trenchant exploration of what models will emerge out of uh, exposing ourselves and thoroughly engaging with, to exposing ourselves to and thoroughly engaging with emergent new discourses and understandings of how this societal inflection wave is is um, is manifesting in all, all dimensions of society. So, um, it, concretely, what that means is that within the school, we are building a a um, a thought lab, a design lab that is as fully as possible. It, uh, really thoroughly immersed with here at MIT, but around the world, um, what is happening in, a, in the discourse around work of the future? What is happening in the discourse around uh, science of learning, um, collective intelligence, uh, and and so many other areas? And then we're trying to bring that into a meta-educational discourse around how do we reverse engineer K through 16 practice, and then teacher training practice, most specifically for us, um, for trying to prepare what's needed 10 to 15 years down the road. We had an interesting conversation at dinner where I argued that I thought a greater percentage of most teacher prep ought to be aligned with a particular um, model or mode of teaching. And, and you argued that you're really in a different business. You're preparing teacher leaders to design and develop the learning models of the future. And some of that will happen in schools and some of it will happen in, in new and different uh, environments. Is that close? Yeah, that that's uh, better than I think I actually said it. So thank you. And, uh, um, and uh, so in that sense, we're not, um, I wouldn't have a monolithic prescription for what all schools of education should, should do clearly. There are schools of ed that um, should be tied into regional systems and so forth and have a responsibility uh, to prepare their graduates for those systems. But we're in a different situation where we, we really see ourselves as, um, as uh, you know, a, a kind of skunk works within the ed education field. And, um, and also that we are promulgating, as you said, um, uh, pioneering uh, students, young people who come here with a pioneering spirit. I mean, many of these, many of our first cohort were accepted into extraordinary programs, Harvard Grad School of Ed and, and, and many others. And they chose to come here, uh, clearly a self-selecting group of entrepreneurial educational thinkers who are now telling us, look, um, uh, uh, your program that you've designed is great here at Woodrow Wilson. and you know, two thirds of us do want to do what you expected us to do, which is to go in and become become change agents within traditional uh, school systems, public school systems. But at least a third of us, they're, they're collectively telling us, are starting to think that we want to do something dramatically different uh, to really redefine what um, what the venues are for where the important education takes place in, in people's lives. Uh, and so responding to that, we have... Um, begun now to require that every student 
as part of their clinical practice has to participate in some something that uh, fits the definition of out of school time. Um, and and we're having students telling us, look, I think my, my career is going to be at the Y. I think I'm going to be at the YMCA or the YWCA, uh, or I'm going to found a pop-up um, educational experience for inner city kids or rural Maine kids. Um, some of them are saying, I want to go work with Sal Khan at KLS. And some of them are saying, I want to be at the MIT Media Lab and working on uh, working on the you know, the in, uh, interface of emerging uh, XR technologies and how that could be uh, populated with the learning experiences for people pre-K through, pre-K through gray. Um, and so we're trying to be, uh, I would say part of my challenge right now is to maintain the, the integrity of, of a brand new program that can't do everything and at the same time be as capacious as possible uh, in response to the wonderful, brilliant, ebullient prompts and challenges our own students are giving us in our first year. What uh, what a great program and a great opportunity for you. It's it's exciting to see your life history and talents uh, being brought to bear here with your interest in in empowerment and social justice and innovations in learning. It um, it should be a great. Um, tour of duty for you bringing this new academy to life. I think you'll teach us all a lot. Uh, Thank you. Let's, it's a blessing. Let's, I want to close by just making sure people can find you and learn more. Um, it looks like woodrowacademy.org is still the, the website for the time being. Yes. Find you guys on Twitter at, at Woodrow Academy. Yes. Check it out. It's uh, it, it's a great site already, and uh, I suspect it will grow in um, in terms of resources and and usefulness in the future. James, thanks for being on the Getting Smart podcast. Uh, thanks for your leadership and your inspiration over the years. It's been uh, you've done uh, such extraordinary things and um, been transformative for so many of us. A big thanks to Jim for joining us on the podcast today. We look forward to watching his program grow in size and in influence. And for more on competency-based education, be sure to listen to episode 177, where Tom and Mary Ryersey dive into the show what you know landscape. That's it for today, listeners. Be sure you hit subscribe on the podcast so you don't miss out on any future episodes. And we'll see you next week. For the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Jessica signing off.